November is the Thursday of months. Like it's <laughs> like November has the same vibe as Thursday. That's right. Funny. Welcome to the episode. Before we begin, remember that you can ask us a question and we will answer it on the podcast at the end of the episode. You can ask us by emailing us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please like, comment, share, subscribe, leave us a review, do all the things. We are discussing the readings for the 32nd Sunday of Ordinary Time, Year A. We hear that wisdom is necessary for a virtuous life. St. Paul tells us not to grieve like those who have no hope, and Christ exhorts us to be vigilant for his coming. But first, the sacred and the profane. So this week on Saturday, the 11th, of November, we celebrate the Feast of St. Martin of Tours. Mm-hmm. And when I started pre- when I started praying the breviary, I wondered why he was such a big deal, because he gets all of his own unique antiphons, all of his unique, um, I think even like the Benedictus prayer and things like that. And very few saints get this. I think St. Saint, uh, Saint Mary Magdalene, I think it's her own, but that's understandable, right? It's, it's Mary Magdalene. Friend of Jesus, yeah. Right, so... Why, like, what's up with Martin? Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until fairly recently that I learned that he's the first non-martyr canonized saint. Yeah. So I, I wonder if part of the reason why he's so like, kind of exalted throughout the years, because he was a much bigger deal, I think, in kind of medieval Europe. You have the like, kind of Martin Mas... Uh, feast celebrations and things like that. You have a lot of cathedrals or monasteries named after St. Martin. So I I wonder if part of the idea of celebrating him so much is because of what he represents, right? That Mm -hmm. everyone prior to him, martyrdom was sort of the the ideal standard. And then here comes a man whose life was so holy that despite not being a martyr, he was canonized. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if there's a commentary of whether you're martyred in actuality or not, you have to be a martyr in spirit. Right. Know, or yeah. if uh, it's a kind of statement on his own holiness that it was, it was so, it was on, it was, it was, his holiness was on the same level as a martyr. Right. Yeah. That's what it, that's what I'm getting out of um, that fact is that the church affirmed that holiness doesn't necessarily have to express itself in valiant actions of, self-sacrifice in martyrdom. Uh, you know, I think when we think of saints and, you know, heroes in the church, it's very easy to just, you know, think of them as like, you know, dying by the sword and like, you know, very romanticized. But I think M- Martin being the first uh, non-martyred canonized saint proves to us that heroism and sanctity can be found in other ways of life. Uh, right. Not only other ways of life, but simpler ways of life too. Uh, that even you know the the stay-at-home mom who is unknown to most of the world can become a great saint in her own right. So right, you don't have to die to become. Well, I guess you don't have to be martyred. You, you do have you to. You do die. have to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you do have to die in but one not way in a or bloody another. Way. Right. Yes, exactly. Yes. You know, it's it's not just that standard. Yeah. But yes, so it's it's an important whole. reminder though uh, that in our in everyone's path of life, holiness and greatness can be found. 
Yes. So. Yes. Simple, simple fact, but very true and one that we should internalize. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I guess if uh, you go to mass on Saturday and you hear all these, all these propers for, for the feast of St. Martin, that's, that's why, why, why is he so exalted is, uh, he was kind of a big deal in the past. Um, like I said, certainly in in the medieval period, whereas now we still do make a big deal, a big deal about him, but I think the emphasis is a little less now, but that's all right. Um, let's, uh, Let's get into the readings. If that's yeah, well, you know, one you thing I, I did have else. something more profane, not not as sacred. Um, okay, good. Yeah. The so we're recording this in the beginning of November, and I just realized that we are in full swing Christmas mode in our uh, society. Yeah, true. Uh, we have. Uh, I just got a coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, and it was a Christmas cup. I was like, "Wow, really? Okay." Yeah. Uh, and it was actually the day after Halloween, uh, me and a priest friend were driving around, Father Gomez, and uh, there was a Christmas tree up in, in someone's house in their window. I was like, it, this is, it's like November 1st, and people are like, let's go, yeah. let's go. Um, so yeah, I, I found it interesting that we don't really like, like Thanksgiving is kind of a Almost like a, like the weird middle child of the holidays, right? You have Halloween that like everyone pumps up with all the decorations, Christmas, but no one really decorates things with like turkeys, I guess. <laughs> well, it, it, I guess it falls. Uh, Thanksgiving falls under the umbrella of just autumnal things. Yeah, you that's know, true. It's not really, right. You know. Right. Um, so you decorate like your house with like fake orange like, yeah. leaves and stuff, and I've yeah. heard uh, I've heard it said that. November is the Thursday of months. Like it's <laughs> like November has the same vibe as Thursday. That's right? funny. That's interesting. Like you're you're like okay, like it's almost it's, Christmas. It's almost there, yeah. You know, it's but almost it's not the you weekend. Know, it's not you know. Right. You still have another day of work. You know, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Once you hit November, you're like, okay, I see it on the horizon. Right. Just like Thursday, it's like okay, I see the weekend, but it's not quite there that's, yet. That's um, that's funny. That kind of so, works. Yeah, it does. Thursday, Thanksgiving, maybe there's an uh, alliteration there too. Ooh. You know, <laughs> H- hadn't thought about that. Um, no, it's true. Yeah. The the what the the autumn beers, the the fall mm. beers, the Oktoberfest, they're slowly going out, and I, I see the winter beers showing up. Yep. You know, the world celebrates Christmas for a long time prior to Christmas, and as soon as Christmas is over. Everything's torn down. Right. Whereas for Catholics, it's kind of the reverse, you know. Right. We like the, the world and the church celebrates Christmas the same. Like it's the same amount of time. Yeah. It's just shifted, right? right. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So that was just something I noticed. Uh, it, it popped up today again when I got my coffee. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot the world celebrates Christmas now. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. Anyway, we could talk more about that and like the symbolism of um, why are we celebrating Christmas so early? Um. When we get closer to yes the festivities, that's true. But, you know. That's true, and we're we're into thirty second Sunday, which means we only have one more. We're close Sunday, yeah. In ordinary time, and then you have the, the feast of Christ King. So yeah, not yeah. not long from now, we will be celebrating the first uh, the first Sunday of Advent. Yep. Okay, so let's let's get into the readings. So our first reading is from Wisdom, the Book of Wisdom, and in this reading, wisdom is personified as a woman. It's referred to in the feminine as her. So 
resplendent and unfading is wisdom, and she is readily perceived by those who love her and found by those who seek her. She hastens to make herself known in anticipation of their desire. Whoever watches for her at dawn shall not be disappointed, for he shall find her sitting by his gate. We can get into the second half, but that first half, um, talking about being perceived by those who love her and found by those who seek her. So it seems like there's a bit of of commentary on the feminine archetype. Mm. You know, that the, the feminine is something that is pursued and not something that pursues. Right? Yes, right. You know, um, think of, you know, a... a a princess in the in the tower, right? Right. And right. it's it's not a commentary on the weakness of of the woman of the woman in the tower. It's a commentary on the kind of the masculine search for beauty. the feminine for yeah. beauty and the feminine yeah. that is worthy of great struggle. You mm-hmm. know, fighting the dragon and such like that, and scaling scaling the the tower. So the same thing here is she as has as you once described a an elusive nature mm-hmm. wisdom that she has to be sought out right um you don't just a, a man who seeks wisdom doesn't just bump into it right? right just like the archetype of the feminine you know the prince doesn't just happen upon the princess and then is able to you know have have her for himself there has to be a struggle there there's a uh, there's a will that has to be um exacted in order to achieve what you're you know what you desire and right. so same thing is true with wisdom you know i'm thinking of dante and beatrice I, i've mentioned uh, them um, dozens of times on the podcast but i think that's a great example of how the feminine stands stands by itself and like you said it's not an image of weakness but it's almost it's actually the opposite it's an image of strength and perfection where she is who she is uh, and and the beauty is so powerful that it calls people to itself, right? Right. And and so this is what gave Dante the motivation to um, you know, climb the mountain uh, and, and to achieve uh, beauty. And so I think relating wisdom to that idea of the feminine, you know, I'm reminded of Plato, who described philosophy, the pursuit of wisdom. Um, as erotic. And it might sound odd, I think, to, to describe philosophy in, uh, in this romantic way. Uh, I think a lot of people can mischaracterize philosophy as reading difficult treatises, you know, and, and it's just like this academic, stuffy uh, hobby. But properly understood, going back all the way to the founder of Western philosophy, Socrates <laughs> and Plato, uh, they described it as this erotic pursuit of wisdom. And even the, the word philosophy, it's philosophia, right? Lover of wisdom, you know, not admirer of wisdom, uh, not, uh, you know, this is a hobby of wisdom, <laughs> but the, the idea that you love wisdom to where it, it just takes over your life and you can't stop thinking about it. You, everything you do is based on this pursuit of growing in wisdom. Just like true love, is never just a hobby. It tints your worldview, right? It, it changes the way you see the world. 
to where you all you can do is think about uh, you know growing growing in wisdom. And when you understand philosophy in that light, um, I think it uh, it it grows out of that idea that philosophy is just for stuffy academics, and it matures into this idea of of a, a lifestyle, a lifestyle. And wisdom really can't be um, anything other than a lifestyle. It's it's a way of seeing things, right? Right. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a lot here, and I think it's just very, very insightful that you know the author of wisdom, Solomon, right? Or what is? Uh, yeah, no, this is uh, yeah. Because sometimes I think it's called the the wisdom of Solomon. The wisdom of Solomon, yeah. So how it goes, yeah. And the the, the wisest of them all. <laughs> um, well, it yeah. It, it's interesting because it's talking about this first reading is talking about uh, how she, on one hand, is elusive, right? She has to be sought after. Um, the the feminine is the the the, the desirable, mm-hmm. and so uh, she, like you said, she kind of calls people to herself. But on the other, it says on the other hand, it says here that she makes her rounds, and she is seeking those worthy of her and mm. will appear to them. So one hand is elusive, but on the other kind of appears to them. I think one way to answer that second half is I think we archetypically, archetypally or symbolically think of the masculine as more spiritual, right? You have uh, the father figure is is spirit, and then you have... Mother is material, material. And matter, yeah, right, matter. Yeah. So, but here you have her depicted as wisdom, which is typically spiritual. Mm. So, how to bridge these? I would say is although spirit is usually masculine, it's through through a woman that the spirit is made flesh, mm. right? It's incarnated. So it's it's almost as though the spirit is seeking people. To become incarnated in them, yeah. If that makes sense, yeah, yeah. That's that's really interesting, um, and it's right because because wisdom doesn't just exist in a vacuum, right? It has to be incarnated, you know. And, and so yes, right, right. And so like this idea that you know once those who love wisdom find her, then they become wise, and that's the fulfillment of wisdom, right? Right, uh, and right. so she—it's yeah. you know, kind of spiritually or in a symbolic sense. Uh, by by taking in wisdom, you give birth to wisdom. Right, you know, right. you 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 house wisdom. Right, in your in your being. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. That's very interesting. I um, yeah, because it does seem like you know, on one hand she is elusive, on another hand, she's she wants to be found, but she wants to be found by those worthy of her, right? So it says that she's readily perceived. It's like, okay, if she's readily perceived, then that means that she's not elusive. But, you know, if we read closer, she's readily perceived by those who love her, not those who are just wandering, right? Right, um, Or right. stagnant or, you know, or slothful. Uh, she's readily perceived by those who love her and those who seek her. Um, she makes her around seeking those worthy of her. Uh, and so, yes, she wants to be found, but only by those who are worthy. Right. Or who are in love, right? That, yeah. As Plato would say, that that erotic pursuit. Right. So. Well, the, the the feminine is not something that chooses, but is chosen. Right. Yeah. It's something that, like you said, is is desirable, and and I think when you when you talk about is perceived, I think there's there is that wisdom is perceived, and 
she's looking for people worthy of her. I wonder if there's a commentary on the the connection between uh, moral life and intellectual life. You know, as you know, as a man thinks, so he lives, and as a man lives, so he thinks. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just to be someone who is intellectually gifted or something like that, or someone who is wise is worthy of her. But it's also someone who has an upright life. Right. Is yeah. worthy of wisdom. Right. Which is almost circular, right? It's like, right. Uh, right. Like you have to have wisdom to gain wisdom in a sense, right? right? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but there is, you know, I think that there is that mysterious nature to wisdom as well. Um, this is not something that you just grasp and then like, oh, I have it and I'm good, right? Right. Um, it, you know, the more that you seek wisdom and obtain wisdom, the more you thirst for her as well. Right. It's like this unending fountain of like thirst and drinking and, and it's just, it's never ending. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think at this point it would be helpful to kind of talk about what wisdom is. Um, yes. You know, wisdom, uh, I think that's a very misunderstood word <laughs> uh, nowadays. Uh, you know, wisdom is not just knowing facts, right? It's not uh, just information, Uh you know, someone who's well-educated, let's say, in the sciences may not be wise, right? Or, or well-educated in anything. I'm using the sciences because that's, a, you know, very, like, factual data, you know, yeah. um, data-heavy uh, study. But uh, wisdom, I think, properly speaking, uh, goes beyond um, what the world would perceive as wisdom, uh, facts and, da- and data. Wisdom, properly speaking, is knowledge of the whole uh, and seeing how all particular parts fit into the whole. Uh, and so it's this, it's a, it's a broad perspective essentially um, on life or existence, if you want to say knowledge of the whole. Um, so I think that's, that's going to be important as we move through the rest of the readings. Um, yes. That, that definition there, but yeah, it, it also has this connection um, to the perfection of prudence. That's what the, the reading says, that mm. for taking thought of wisdom is the perfection of prudence and whoever, and for whoever, and whoever for her sake keeps a vigil. Um, I, I think that wisdom, as you described it, is kind of knowledge of the whole and the parts and how they, they lead up to the highest cause. But then prudence is almost this idea of of preparedness mm-hmm. of, of almost like foresight someone who has uh, someone who has prudence is someone who can perhaps see things coming down the horizon right, maybe right. one one definition so i think putting those two together you have wisdom perfects prudence in that it not only do you have this foresight but you see almost the pieces that lead to that right that end? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. If if prudent prudence is, you know, knowing how to act, when to act, right? When yes. to act and how to act, then wisdom is going to perfect that. And so you're going to know exactly how your actions are going to affect those around you. It's going to affect your future. And so once you're able to have that vision of the whole, that's going to impact your actions in the moment, right? right? And, and so that make that makes sense the perfection of prudence. So, yeah. Because there's kind of two types of of wisdom usually that we, we talk about. You have the, kind of the wisdom as the intellectual virtue that uh, 
that helps perfect the mind, and then you have wisdom as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think here it's talking about gift of the Holy Spirit, and I, and I I bring that up to connect it back to this this personification of her as as um, feminine, right? Because it almost makes more sense of it's it's gift, right? The the to have wisdom is a, is a gift mm-hmm. that disposes you to act well. It's not something you can always earn, but something you can only be disposed for. You know, like I said, again, this idea of finding people worthy of her, so finding people who are well disposed to receive a gift. Right. Um, but you, you can't it, – it, it doesn't grow or decrease like a, a virtue does, but it's more of kind of a, a stable disposition. Right, I think, the foundation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, any other thoughts? Um, no, I I want to move on to the psalm. I yeah. have some thoughts there too. Um, so, do you have any? Uh, no, no. Let's you, let's okay. let's move on. Yeah. So the psalm, uh, Psalm sixty three. The response is, "My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord, my God." And so it, it's this idea that our our souls are pining for our Lord, right? Oh God, you are my God, whom I seek. For you, my flesh pines and my soul thirsts, like the earth parched, lifeless, and without water. And so the connection there to the first reading, I think, is very apparent. Um, seeking our Lord, right? Thirsting for him. Not just this uh, almost like a benign hobby again, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, having faith in God and making him your your all is not just something that's uh, attached to the rest of your life, but it's the foundation of your life. Right. Uh, and so... You know, I, I was thinking about, this is not one of our readings uh, for this week, but where Paul describes Christ as the wisdom of God, right? Yeah. Uh, he says, uh, you know, in, in Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Right. And it's an odd, it's an odd title um, to give Christ. Well, how is, what, is, what does that mean for Christ to be the wisdom of God? I think, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, I think... To say that Christ is the wisdom of God is to to say that in the life of Christ we see how we see reality ultimately as it is, and, and it's this outpouring of self that allows Him to be opened up for eternal life, so that He can ascend to the Father and He can be Lord of all. And and when we study the life of Christ, more than just study, when we love Him and we make Him our all we gain a new vision that's, in a sense, wise, right? That, that's where we gain our wisdom. You know, the church says that Christ is the fullness of revelation. And so if Christ has fully revealed to us the mind of God, and in a sense we can see all of reality existing within the mind of God, then what greater knowledge of the whole is there than the life of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, in a sense... When we see the life of Christ, we see the pattern of reality as it ought to be lived out. And that's what overcomes death, and that's what gives us eternal life. And so from that perspective, I, can, I, I think that that's how I understand when Paul says Christ is the wisdom of God. Yeah. Uh, it's, but this is just me musing on this. I don't know if um, you I mean, have any thoughts on that. that. That does make sense. I was thinking of Christ as the Logos, of God, yeah, right. You know, the Christ right. says, um, you know, because logos has a lot of different interpretations or a lot of different um, translations. Mm-hmm. Maybe that logos is logic. It's uh, 
knowledge, you know, it's, it's word, it's all these different things. And I, I was also thinking of more of a Augustinian or, or St. Bonaventure's idea of like Christ as the center mm. of all things. Like Christ is the, is like the uniting point. He's the kind of, I think, what is it called like logos medium? Like it's, he's the, the medium of all the, of all the universe of the, of the highest and the lowest of, of nature and the divine, mm-hmm. you know, he's God and man, he's all these things. So he, he is the central pattern. And even uh, St. Bonaventure would say, you can't even do metaphysics without knowing Christ, mm-hmm. which is kind of a bold claim wow. because uh, he, that's partly why he's critical of Aristotle. But, you know, people would say you could, you could study Aristotle mm-hmm. and still know metaphysics. But if Christ is truly the logic of the universe, if he's the, the wisdom of everything, you actually can't do science without Christ. That's really interesting. And I, yeah, because I think that kind of, I, I think that, you know, if, if I wanted to, I can force your idea into my idea. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I think you could. <laughs> yeah, no. But like in the sense of like calling Christ a logos is, is the revelation of God's mind, right? Right. Uh, it's yeah. the word, right? Um, yeah. Made flesh. Isn't that, um? no, I think that's something else. In Mi- Michelangelo's painting, yes, the father is his, his, uh, cloak god the father's cloak looks like a brain yes and, but that's I, right. but he's that that isn't he's well, touching adam he's not he touching is touching Christ, adam but. but there is a sense of like the the this creation existing within the mind of god right. and it reaches out right yeah. and, and so yeah. there's something there um, yeah no I, I think um for bonaventure the, the greatest expression is in christ then. yeah as as like if you want to see the full expression of the pattern in, in God's mind or the the arch, the you know eternal archetypes like that it's yeah. in Christ it, Christ right. unites all those as, yeah, exactly. as as the center point but that's yeah. um i never knew that about uh, his claim about metaphysics that you can't do metaphysics without knowledge of Christ yeah uh, and i think it, it kind of works in the sense that as we were saying uh, if he's the he's if he's the logic behind all things and we see this pattern of like living, self-sacrifice, love, and and dying, and then rising again, and you almost can't unsee that from reality, and it changes the way you you do everything. Right. And this is kind of what uh, disciplined the mind of uh, Europe, right? After um, you know the Apostolic Age, it's that vision which gave us uh, a foundation to create a civilization, right? And, uh, and you know, I think I guess was well, this would would be like what Nietzsche would be saying that Christianity disciplined the, the, the mind of the yeah. West. Uh, it came from this idea of Christ as a logos. And once you have that, the fullness of revelation, everything else just spreads out from that. Um, right. So, right. yeah, it's a fascinating idea. Yeah, I, I think Bonaventure would say that you, you can, you know, in theory, do these sciences without Christ, uh, but truly the Christian metaphysic, uh, metaphysician mm-hmm. Is someone who has the fullness, yeah. And you, you know, <clears throat> Aristotle and Plato, as good as they are, are will always be Lacking. not, yeah, full until. So truly, the only philosophy I think for for him would be Christian philosophy, right? And the West was not built on Hellenistic philosophy, although Hellenistic philosophy aided the West. Oh, sure. The West was built by Christianity, yeah, and and that's. That's the fact, boys. Yeah. So that's a little detour <laughs> into scholastic. Yeah, I know that was a little bit of metaphysics, a but that's okay. But it's fascinating. It's um, related. Yeah, basically. So um, <laughs> anyway, going so, back yeah, to our yeah. readings. The, the soul is thirsting for you. Yeah, is yeah. 
this yeah it goes back again to this this quest yeah you know, when you're you're thirsty you look for something that'll quench your thirst yep so here you know you're 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 seeking to know the ultimate things you know how does how do how do these parts fit into the whole yep in order to do that you seek wisdom you seek philosophy i guess yeah exactly so. and the the language of the psalms of course is very beautiful it's poetic um the thirsting is intentional that word it's not my soul is interested in you right <laughs> my soul is <laughs> right. thirsting it gives us this like uh imaginary power of just if you don't quench your thir- your thirst you die right and so without god you die you know the, the, this person cannot go on living uh, without quenching his thirst um i love the last verse i will remember you upon my couch and through the night watches i will meditate on you this is someone who's like in love Right, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, you just can't stop thinking about your beloved, right? And yeah. that's again related to this idea of like feminine, uh, the feminine aspect of wisdom, um, and an erotic pursuit again. So yeah, it's a it's a full, united search. My flesh pines for you, and my soul thirsts for you. Yeah, my whole being. So my my whole being, you know, my body and my soul, are are lifeless without this. Um, and the psalmist is correct that. When you seek God, you do seek wisdom, right? You know, because again, maybe going back to Bonaventure, you know, he who knows God has wisdom, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if you want to know the ultimate cause, seek God, and then you know you can be aided by philosophy, but ultimately, God is your is your answer. Yeah, you know exactly. Um, yeah, I think I just think that idea of a person who's in love, uh, truly in love is a perfect analogy to the pursuit of wisdom and the pursuit of God. Um, for kindness is greater is a greater good than life. This is another verse in the psalm. Uh, so life itself, uh, you know, is subject to <laughs> this relationship with this person. My lips shall glorify you. You can't stop talking about your beloved. So it's, it's very romanticized, but I, I think it gives it a, this, um, again, that imaginary power of, yeah. Of what a relationship with God and wisdom looks like. So. No, I, I agree. Any other thoughts? No, we can move on to uh, okay. the second reading. So the second reading, we have two options, the short and the long form. Um, the longer form, I, I think some pastors may omit just because it gets strange and apocalyptic. Again, the, the we don't want to scare the people. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. well, well, it's, yeah, it's just there's some questions <laughs> that even scholars have. Mm. Uh, but again, the th- the letter to the Thessalonians is very apocalyptic, so it's using a lot of apocalyptic and even political language. So the short form that everybody will get <laughs> is, you know, no matter what, <laughs> is. Uh, St. Paul says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, so you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose, so too will God, through Jesus, bring those who have died, bring those who have fallen asleep, mm-hmm. or bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So here we have kind of the the call of the Christian to perhaps unite grief and hope. That grief is obviously a, a, a natural response to to loss of a loved one, but 
that your hope is grounded in something greater. Mm-hmm. I think there's a good connection here to our theme of wisdom, of hope and wisdom and understanding that death is not the end. Yeah. And only those, I think, who have hope and who have wisdom to see the higher perspective, that this piece of death fits into the higher perspective and higher whole of God's plan. Yeah, exactly. That's um, That was my thought when I read this. Hope is grounded in wisdom because you see the whole, right? You see the bigger picture. And so, like you said, death is not the end. If it, if you were to grieve like the rest, as St. Paul says, then essentially you're not seeing the whole. You're not grounded in wisdom. Right. Uh, and so, you know, he doesn't say that um, do not grieve. Like you said, gr- grief is natural, but it's a different kind of grieving. Um, it says that so that you may not grieve like the rest. Uh, and so, you know, our, our sadness at, at saying goodbye to a, the law, you know, to a loved one who passes, passes away in the face of death, it's natural to grieve. But that grief has to be grounded on the fact that we hope we will see that person again. Right. And, and that's the broader picture. That's, that's wisdom. So. Yeah, I mean, there's just the bare basics of grief that this person is no longer here. And that that is sad. Yeah. And you wish they were, but your grief is not based on that they are, you know, annihilated. Right. Essentially, you know, like I said. Exactly. Um, around this time, I was when I was studying the the, the Thessalonians in in seminary, I think there was a my professor talked about a, a common Roman inscription in graves, which was something like, "I was not. I was. I am not." I care not. Hmm. It was it was something sort of fatalistic and almost nihilistic about the afterlife because you know I, I think sometimes people have the common idea that the afterlife was a very it was a very common idea that everyone kind of enjoyed heaven in a way but that's not really true especially around the the time that Christ comes is the afterlife isn't it's kind of ambivalent you know it's not hmm. really a good place maybe not a bad place some people maybe don't even believe it at all so I think. St. Paul is addressing this, that death is not the end, and it's not that, well, you know, you, you know, those who grieve are like those who have no hope, grieve because they will never see their loved ones again. And they're, they said their, their loved one's being is annihilated. Right. But that's not the case. Yeah. Because if God did this for his son, he will do it for you. Mm-hmm. Have hope in that, not, again, that you're annihilated being. Exactly. No, that's uh, that's exactly what Paul is getting at with the language he uses in talking about death. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep. So he considers death as a falling asleep. Yeah. That, implying that, yeah. that there will be a, an awakening, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, you know, he doesn't, I don't think in this, even in the long version, he doesn't even use the word death, Right. Yeah. Well, he does say, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose, um, but that's in, in, you know in, in relation to Christ's cross and and then his resurrection. But he keeps talking about death as a kind of falling asleep. He he says it um, twice, um, right? Who um, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, this this idea of sleep. So, just in, even in Paul's language, it's it's clear that he. Um, you know, he he's he has this wisdom to see that death is not the end. So I think that's a good point to highlight is this idea of 
uh, of sleep and death. Is that true? He doesn't say that your you know your loved ones have died, but they're asleep, and that implies that one day you will wake up. Yeah, and that's the per I think the perfect Christian image is that no one dies forever. Mm-hmm. You know, you you simply fall asleep, and at one point, Christ will come and awaken you. Yeah, in the longer form, you get a I think a little bit more of that understanding because right after that. You know, right after the first part that we described, he says, um, those who are left until the coming of the Lord will kind of uh, be awakened, uh, or those who have died or those who are still, you know, still awake will be awakened by this, this word of command, the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God will come down from heaven. So it's, it's almost like you get this, what, what, would, what would rouse you from sleep? It's like a loud trumpet or or right. a voice, right? You know, the celestial alarm clock. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this could be very scary. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I imagine being dead asleep, dead asleep, and a trumpet coming in. That would be kind of jarring. But I would try to hit the snooze button. That's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five so, more, five more minutes. <laughs> right. So you you get this uh, apocalyptic again imagery of of the second coming of Christ and the dead rising and those who are alive and those who are dead meeting Christ. Um, And this final kind of word of encouragement is, we shall thus always be with the Lord. Yeah. And that's, that's the Christian hope. Yep. Is you and the ones you have, you have lost will once we'll meet again, but not only just meet again, but we'll be with the Lord. Yep. That's your hope. And then uh, Paul's exhortation at the end, therefore console one another with these words. It's a reminder that this is what we await. Right. It's very easy to lose your foundation of wisdom in the face of death. Because death really does feel like the final say. Uh, you know, on yeah. this side of heaven, it, it, that's the end. But we have to constantly remind each other that no, no, no. It's not a annihilation, like you said, but a falling asleep. And that is, that is wisdom. That, that's, a, that's Christian wisdom see the whole and the whole context of this letter is a kind of an exhortation to be a witness of of holiness and hope in a pagan world as especially in Thessalonica that was you know heavily paganized and I think seeing and it, it almost kind of feel like a that's very apt for our own time is is I feel like so many people have a kind of a nihilistic view like on one hand they have a very nihilistic view of the present life but it seems like everyone goes to heaven like right. there's still like a <laughs> interesting an understanding of of heaven. Yeah, I don't know if you you've seen that, but that's what it seems like. Yeah, um, as long as you're not really bad, you go to heaven. Then you'll you know? be, you know, what is it like on the golf course, like golfing with Saint Michael or Saint Peter? Yeah, or that's that's like the cliche image of heaven. Yeah, you know, and, I hope yeah. not. I can't, I can't. I can't play golf. <laughs> no, I know. I, I hate golf. I can't. I can't do that. Um, but yes, yeah, that's it. Yeah, but that's, that's it, so it's it's. I, I do love this line, like grieve. We do not grieve like those who have no hope, and yeah. um, I, I hope to maintain that. You know, yeah. And I think uh, when we have this vision, it also it, it affects the way we live, right? And so going back to that idea of the perfection of prudence, you know, once we have the vision to see the whole and realizing that death is not the end, if if that is truly the foundation of our lives then we're going to act differently, right? You know, our, our actions are not just random points uh, 
on this timeline that then ends with death, but it's actually something that uh, impacts yeah. how it, it impacts our journey towards heaven or hell. Right. Uh, and so. Yeah. One uh, last point on this. Uh, scholars talk about the language that's being used, especially in the longer version, talking about the the word of command, the trumpets, and then the going out to meet each other. Uh, apparently, this language is very reminiscent of kind of the victory of God. So it's language that appears in the reception and r- arrival of imperial and military figures, mm. the kind of the, the Greek phrasing of it. So it's, it has this overall idea of Christ coming back as the emperor and victor, and and we, his subjects, going out to meet him. Mm. So I think it has a, the additional effect of Christ not just coming back, but he's coming back for to be Lord of the living and the dead, right? right. He's, he's the emperor of both. Right. Which St. Paul talks about elsewhere. But death will not have the final say. Yep. The Lord is victor. And that's what, uh, that's what that term, you know, gospel originally meant, evangelium, yeah. is, is this declaration that the Lord has conquered. Uh, it was a, from what I understand, it was a uh, Roman term. Yes. Where Caesar went around proclaiming that he was the victor, and he would send evangelists out before him saying, Caesar has won, right? right. Uh, and so that term, gospel, was not used accidentally by the evangelists. It was intentional to say that Christ is, he he precedes Caesar, right? Or, you know, he yeah, Caesar has no power in relation to Christ, uh, he is a true Lord, um, the commander. So. Right. You have a kind of the the gospel writers co-opting that political that political word yeah. of of gospel to show that you know the emperors say that this is the good news. But I say to you, you know, God says this is the good news. Yeah. This is the final good news. Right. Okay. Ready? Any other thoughts? You ready to move on to the Let's gospel? Jump into the gospel. Okay. Let's go to this wedding feast. Another wedding feast. Another, <laughs> another feast. <laughs> <laughs> but again, we're we're in that apocalyptic eschatological discourse, so we're nearing the end of the year. So this is this is a feast, but it's also a reminder about about the end of things. So yeah. we have the the famous parable of the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins uh, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. So we know. The opposite, so wisdom is a virtue, and it kind of every virtue has its opposite, uh, opposite yeah. and that is foolishness. Folly is the opposite. Um, the foolish ones, when taking their lamps, brought no oil with them, but the wise brought flask of oil with their lamps. Since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight there was a cry, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those... Then all those virgins got up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, No, for there will not be enough of, of there will not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. So I just a pause here. I I wonder if there's a bit of satire for the wise in saying that, because it's midnight. That's what we heard. And I guess there is some historical evidence that maybe someone would be open at midnight. Mm. But typically, 
who would be open selling oil? Right. So I don't know if it, on one hand there's a bit of satire right. from the wise saying, no, go go look, and the foolish not really catching it, catching it yeah. and saying, okay, yeah, let's go look, or the fools are so desperate that they say, okay, yeah, I guess we'll go. Yeah, <laughs> like, like we have no, that's we ha- the only choice. We that have, we have no choice. Right. That's, that's funny. That's just a, a personal yeah, that's interpretation. Right, but, at midnight. Uh, like, who's going to be helping you with your lamp? All <laughs> right, because this is the ancient world. This isn't, you know, New York City. Right. This, you know, this, the city that never sleeps right. or There's something. There's not like a 7-Eleven that's open 24-7 yeah. across the street. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I also think, uh, I, I wonder, this just caught, um, I just noticed this now. Um, it says, since the bridegroom was long delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. I'm wondering if this falling asleep is reminiscent to um, the second reading where, like, this can be anal- analogous to death, right? Yeah, uh, th- yeah, because I think there's, you know, with with a lot of these parables, there's so many interpretations, and you can kind of go with any or all. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that that could be a, a reference here, right, is that all of them died, mm-hmm. you know, quote, you know, symbolically, yeah. became drowsy and died. And when the bridegroom came, only those who had kind of died with the the light or the light and oil of faith and yeah. love or what you know whatever you want to say it good works, only they were prepared. Right. If yeah. That, you know where yeah. the other ones kind of went off into darkness. That's an, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I just yeah just noticed that now like this uh, this idea of falling asleep. We we're just talking about falling asleep with Paul, and so uh, that's interesting. Yeah, because there's. Um, all kinds of symbolism for for sleep, right? It's mm-hmm. it's um, maybe becoming lax in your faith. Yeah, right. It's it's you know a symbol for unconsciousness, unawareness, uh, unawareness, uh, yeah. right? But I, I think, given what like so what we just said about it, that um, I, I I like the c- connection to death. The the other weird thing is. Um, they all fell asleep, right? They said they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Right. But then at the Death end... Death comes for us all. Yeah, but no, keep going. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then at the end it says the final exhortation from Christ in this is, therefore stay awake for you know neither the hour nor the day. Mm-hmm. But the the virgins, the wise virgins who had the oil, they got to go in. So it's almost like there's something... Beyond, sta- uh, it's it's like they had something beyond staying awake. I don't know. Yeah, you know, and and maybe it was, you know, and this gets at the core of the uh, the gospel of the wisdom of the virgins was exactly what we've been talking about. They were able to see the whole. Like they understood that if the bridegroom is long delayed, and if we do fall asleep, then we need to be prepared beforehand for that moment. Right. And so they brought their oil, you know, they brought enough oil for their for their lamps. And in that sense, with, if, now I'm talking analogously, if they kept death ever before their minds, then in some way they conquered death, right? Like they almost right. transcended death to where they were awake, even though if they fell asleep, right? Um, so it says, therefore, stay awake, like, you know, therefore conquer death, remember your end, but remember that there's more to your end. I don't know. That's yeah. No, I, I. That's what I was thinking. Is one could fall asleep but still have the light 
on. Yeah, right, right, the, right the, exactly. The oil could still be burning that light. Yeah. Even though one is asleep. So it's, so it's like those, again, who fall asleep in death, you know, the sleep of death with the light of faith still kind right. of, or the, the fire of faith still, gl- you know, glowing within them. That's what allows them to enter. Exactly. That's, so yeah, that's one thought I had about yeah. that. Yeah. No, I, no, I think that's, that's right. Uh, it, it makes sense to me in the context of this gospel. I think, uh, you know, what's really interesting is that we, we see wisdom on display here uh, in a very uh, practical way when the bridegroom is, when he, when he comes and, and they're, they're uh, exhorted to come out and meet him, the five foolish virgins said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Now, you know, it could be, and this is where the, the practicality comes in, it's like if someone is asking you for something, uh, it's, it would seem in the moment that that's the charitable thing to do is to, get, to share your oil, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, would it not be an act of charity? to share what you have. That's, I think that is where wisdom has to come into play because in the moment, it would seem like the charitable thing to do is to share your oil. But if you have a vision of the whole, then you can say, well, no, actually, we're all, we're, we are all going to run out of oil <laughs> if I share it with you. And then who, you know, who will be left to, to greet the bridegroom? And it's in that wisdom that you can say, like, it's not an act against charity to not share, but it's actually prudent for for me to have my oil and you to go find some um, so that we might have a chance to see the bridegroom. It's, it's again, that wisdom, um, seeing the bigger picture and, and not being caught up in the moment just to, to fulfill what you might think, like, oh, this is best for this moment. You know, if I'm nice and kind in this moment, then that's what's best. Um, right. That would be a foolish move. So Right. The, uh, all those virtues are working together. You have prudence, wisdom, and, and charity. Mm-hmm. And because they're also being mindful of their, their own duty to wait for the bridegroom. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. They said if they have if, a responsibility. Either. If I share my oil with you, none of us actually make our responsibilities. So perhaps it's best that some of us do. Yeah. And you can, and, you know, maybe there, maybe there was, in theory, someone's still open. So, it's like, no, if you're quick, maybe you can turn things around. Yeah. But I have to keep mine. Um, it, and I, almost, I don't know if it's uh, a statement symbolically on faith is something like faith or love or good, work, good works, whatever it is. You can't ask people for those. Like you, you have to have it yourself, right? Yeah, like, exactly. You know, you can't say, give me some of your faith. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, you have to have it yourself. Right. You have to be prepared with your own oil, your own faith to go out and meet the bridegroom, the, the coming of Christ. I can't do it for you. Yep. Like you said, you have your own responsibilities to, to take on. That's, yeah. that's one thought. The ending of the gospel, I always thought was incredibly terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Because it says um, they went out and the bridegroom came, those who were, who were ready uh, went into the feast with him. Then the door was locked. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he said in reply, Amen, I say to you, I do not know you. And I was like, that's... That's a bold statement. 
That um, that's that's a that's just like literally soul crushing, yeah. right? Because if you take again, if the bridegroom is Christ, we just talked about as the logos, you know, you know, the logic, the the kind of the center of all things, the the one, the mind of God, and He's saying to you, "I do not know you." Yeah, that means you have been completely cut off, cut off, yeah, from God. Yeah, and it's almost you see that identity of the light or the image of the light, I think, represents an identity in Christ. Yeah. And if you don't have that light, then you're lost in the darkness. There is no recognition of you, right, of yourself. Right. Uh, and so it's almost like Christ recognizes himself in us. Uh, and that's what, you know, you can understand kind of faith as, as that. It's like it's Christ within us. But if that identity is gone, then there is no recognition yeah. of the person. And so, yeah, it, and it's supposed to be frightening, you know. This, again, this exhortation to stay awake. Um, yeah, because yeah. elsewhere in the math in uh, God, the Gospel of Matthew, he talks about uh, those who do those who do not fulfill the will of the Father. They'll say to you, "I never knew you." Yeah, right. Yep. And that's um, that's 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 terrifying, right? For God to say to you. I don't know. You. I don't know you. Yeah, and it's like I thought you knew everything. It's yeah, like, right. but that's how that's how bad it is. That's like you are, you know. I don't know if you want to get philosophical. It's like you have non-being. Yeah, right. Like you are like negated. Yeah, kind of out out of existence. And right, a... and and it's your actions that cause you to lose your identity. Uh, you know, I think we can relate this to uh, earthly relationships. When someone goes so when when someone is so far gone. We use that term like I don't even know him anymore, right? Uh, and so that that sense of like you just lose yourself to your sin almost. And you know I'm reminded of um, Lord of the Rings. You know the the one of the effects of the ring is to make yourself invisible, right? And I think that that's uh, an allegory uh, or analogous to the the idea that sin. You know if we understand uh, the ring to be a symbol of sin. That it, it doesn't make you more of a person, it makes you less of a person. Your yeah. identity succumbs to that sin, to where you're not even a thing anymore. You're invisible. Yeah. You, know, you don't even know the person anymore. As seen by, you know, Smeagol and Gollum is like the perfect example in that story, where Gollum is like a shadow of his former self, right? Right. Um, he, he doesn't even look like, like he used to. You're right. Uh, Humanoid. He loses, yeah. yeah he kinda... lost his identity to, to sin. Yeah. So, I, I know uh, sin and evil is often kind of. Uh, compared to something like uh, ascending and descending numbers, so you know you have you know negative one, positive one. So it's almost like you're going down. Sin and evil is a negation yeah. right. of, of good. So you're you're right. You're you're not becoming more of a being. You're becoming less being. Yeah. By by your sin, and to the point where again, if you have non-being, you become invisible. Yeah. Like you yeah. actually lose that. You lose your identity, so that God can say, "I do not know you." That is, that's heavy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've I've thought about that a lot and been like, wow, that's that 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 might be one of the worst things you could hear at the end of your life is I I don't know you. Yeah, you know, from your creator. Right. right. Yeah. So I, I at the at the end it, again it says to stay awake, which I think some translations are to be watchful or something like that. Mm-hmm. Which you know I, I I take that to be since if you're watchful, you're almost detached from what is present and you're you're kind of looking for things that are unseen right it's like watch out for this this thing right 
watch out for this person. Keep a watch out. Is they're not present, but they, but as soon as they are, you you immediately are aware, right? Yeah. And that's part of wisdom again. Is is almost to kind of snap you to attention. Yeah, exactly. And to be mindful of of the right things and when to when to be vigilant. Yeah, which is why I think living in wisdom is is contrary to like a present moment mindfulness ideology right. where you know like that's a very it's a very that's a very popular way to live is just live in the present moment do what you feel is right carpe diem you know yolo yeah. whatever <laughs> the kids are saying <laughs> right. well that's not a thing anymore but yeah that uh wisdom is antithetical to living in the present moment um to stay awake and watch implies that something is coming that you cannot see in the present yeah. and, and that's again that's wisdom seeing the bigger picture um, right s- Perceiving the future, right, so. and and prudence as well. Again, preparing for you know you on a trip, you know you might bring extra things in, mm-hmm. just in case. And the same thing here, the 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 what the, the five virgins were considered wise because they had that in mind of just in case, you never know. Yeah, like bring the extra. But. I'm going to relate this also to the liturgy. Um, I think the mass is the perfect act of remembering our future. At at mass, it's the anamnesis of you know do this in remembrance of me, and we make present the you know the sacrifice of Christ. But because we remember, we also see where we're going, right? And it's at the mass where we remember that death has been destroyed, so we can have eternal life. And so the idea of the past also relating to our future, um, remembering your future, uh, which is a, kind of a, a nice poetic um, you know way to put it. But that also gives you knowledge of the whole, right? It's past and future. Um, that, get, that informs your present. And so your present is always connected to what came before and what is coming after. So knowledge of the whole. So. Yeah. No, that, that's a good connection to, uh, to the Mass. The already, the, what is it? Already and not yet. Already, already and not the, yet, the, yes. The principle. So yeah. it's like Christ is here, but yet he's coming again and mm-hmm. uh, to always be... Right. Always Christ has so. died. Christ is risen. Christ will come yes, again. Yeah. Exactly. I also thought of um, the the antiphon for night prayer: "The protect us, Lord, as we stay awake; watch over us as we sleep; that awake we keep watch with Christ, and asleep rest in His peace." Yeah. So it's again, how is it that you can fall asleep but yet still rest in His peace? And yeah. It's, right. Again, it's this. I think it's the the oil, right? Mm-hmm. It's the the lamp that is burning. Yeah. Even though you're not awake, there's something that keeps watch. Mm-hmm even amidst your drowsiness. Right, right. Or um, and then when, when you are awake, you can be vigilant with him, even then. It's like a constant kind of cycle of watchfulness. Mm-hmm. But any other thoughts? No, it's pretty yeah. comprehensive. I think, yeah, I think, so. we did, I think we did a good job. We can pat so. ourselves on the back. You tell <laughs> us, audience. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> they will let us know. All right, well, thank you for listening to this week's episode. Again, if you have any questions, you can ask us at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Also, please share and like this podcast. Thank you.